You're listening to Little Green Cheese, episode 34. Hi there everyone, I'm Gavin Webber and this podcast is where you can learn about cheese making at home. Well this week's topic is going to be about coagulation. So what is coagulation? Well coagulation is the process by which the milk turns into a solid mass under the action of rennet. Coagulation time, it varies between 30 minutes and 24 hours and it depends on the amount of rennet that you add to the milk. And it also determined by the type of cheese you're making and the level of pH, whether you've added starter cultures and stuff like that. So soft cheeses tend to usually take more time. And a good example is if you make, say, a cream cheese, which takes over about 24 hours to coagulate because you're only putting a few drops. So in a batch that I make, I make a four litre batch. So I add one drop per litre. So that's four drops of of rennet and then I dilute that with water and then I add that in. And not a lot of rennet. And another cheese that I make, a camembert, um, it takes about between 60, sometimes up to 90 minutes when you add the, the rennet. I use, I make an 8 litre batch and I use about 2.5 mils of rennet for an 8 litre batch. Uh, and that doesn't have a ripening phase. It, it the ripening phase after you add the starter culture is only about 15 minutes tops. I'll have to check my recipe. I don't have it in front of me, but it's, I think it's about 15 minutes. And then you add the rennet. That's because those type of cheeses, they're quick maturing cheeses. They don't need a lot of uh, lactic uh, conversion, so you don't need to convert the lactose into lactic acid. You need the rennet to do most of the work for you there. And you need the penicillium candidum to, to create the white bloom around the camembert. So on the other hand, cheddar or um, parmesan or romano, those harder types of cheeses, um, you need a fair bit of rennet. And you only add it after the milk's been ripened or the acidity is increased. So after you've added the starter, you leave the milk to ripen, um, covered for about 45 minutes. That increases the acidity of the milk and then you add the rennet and then that sets a very firm uh, curd very quickly. And there are various forms of coagulation of your milk. And the first one is lactic or acid coagulation. So this is coagulation that, that occurs at temperatures ranging from around 20 degrees to about 32 degrees. 32 degrees Celsius, which is 68 to 90 Fahrenheit, with little or no added rennet. So the acidification is produced by high populations of lactic bacteria. Now, this usually only occurs when you have raw milk or you add uh, starter culture and you don't need uh, the addition of rennet to coagulate the milk. Some popular cheeses that come to mind where you don't add, where you, where you have high acid cheeses, and they are things like uh, mozzarella, that's a high acid cheese, you don't add a starter culture to that. Uh, another one is ricotta. Ricotta is, is purely transformed into curds and whey by the addition of acid, whether that be 
whether that be vinegar, citric acid, or lemon juice. And lemon juice uh, forms paneer, and using vinegar forms ricotta. So the next type is just a pure rennet coagulation. So rennet coagulation is obtained solely with the addition of rennet to pasteurized or raw milk. There is no lactic bacteria influencing the process. And this results usually from cheeses that typically lack flavor. Uh, They don't melt when heated because of a high pH due to the lack of the lactic bacteria activity and some examples of this is queso blanco which is just a a white uh, curd cheese i can't think of many other types of cheese that uh, this is where you just add rennet so finally the last type of coagulation is mixed coagulation so this is a result of both the lactic bacteria and rennet activity usually the coagulation takes place within between about 30 and 90 minutes at uh, temperatures ranging from 28 to 32 degrees Celsius, which is 82 to 90 Fahrenheit. So this type of coagulation produces the widest variety of cheeses, which also include camembert, blue cheese types, semi-hard, and hard cheeses such as um, cheddar and parmesan. Semi-hard, I would say things like uh, kefili, and farmhouse cheddars are semi-hard cheeses as well. So because there's two types of rennet, there's the natural animal product rennet, which comes from a calf stomach, and the other one is synthetic, uh, which is the vegetarian rennet. The synthetic one needs to be diluted a lot more than what the the natural rennet does. Um, some of the references that I've read... Uh, because I don't use uh, I don't use the natural rennet I don't use the the animal based version is that when you dilute the natural rennet that you only dilute it ten times per volume um, with cool water cool unchlorinated water with the uh, vegetarian rennet you should dilute that by a factor of eighty times the volume now I stick to the middle of the road so when I make my cheeses I dilute the 2.5 mils in 60 mils of water so that's about 25 times um, per volume yeah so just remember that if you're using natural rennet that you don't dilute it in as much water now just check the instructions usually the manufacturer of that rennet will tell you how many times to dilute that down in water um, before you add it to your milk. Now, another factor to remember that when you're using goat's milk or sheep's milk, that you should reduce the rennet rate by about 20 to 25%. That's because most of the recipes, and certainly the recipes in my cheese book, Keep Calm and Make Cheese, are based on cow's milk. If you don't die, if you don't reduce the amount of rennet, um, what will happen is that the coagulation will be a bit too rapid. The solids are very high in sheep and goat's milk, uh, therefore that's why you have to adjust it down. Now some uh, tips that I've got here around improper um, curd setting or improper coagulation. So some things that can affect the the setting of your milk. Um, excessive heat treatment, so if you're using ultra-high temperature or um, ultra-pasteurised milk, that will have a big effect on whether your curd's set or not. 
homogenization. So you actually add need to add in calcium chloride to add a bit more soluble calcium into the milk before you add your rennet. Uh, if you've got uh, homogenized milk, and if you're using raw milk and it's been infected with mastitis or you've got a newly calved cow and you've milked that and it's got a lot of colostrum in the milk, that'll prevent the rennet from forming a nice firm curd as well. So just keep that in the back of your minds if you do have your own house cow. So that the, the what will happen there for all of those things I've just mentioned is that the milk will remain soft and it won't it won't form a very good curd. Now, on the other hand, if you've got an ex- excessive um, milk calcium content or you've got a low pH, if you've got high protein levels in your milk, it's pretty hard to determine whether you have or not, or you use too much rennet, then you'll get an excessively firm curd, produce a dry and hard textured cheese. So that's all the tips I've got there for a coagulation and what it is and what it does and the three main types, lactic or acid coagulation, rennet coagulation, and mixed coagulation. Hopefully that shed a little bit of light on coagulating your milk. Oh, there's one final tip, um, as I mentioned probably in previous podcast episodes, that if you do add lipase to your recipe, and most of the recipes that I have, I've adjusted for that, you actually need to add a little bit more rennet to set the curd, otherwise you'll end up with a sloppy curd. It affects the structure of the milk, um, so you need to add a little bit more rennet as well. Well, the news today is not so much news as in it's happened recently. I found this... uh, a very interesting cheese resource. It's called the channel. It's called Channel Cheese, um, and it's produced by Alison Bryan. And I think she's a cheese judge. Um, she's an Australian lady, and she's got a, a website, and it's called channelcheese.tv. So that's channelcheese.tv. C H A N N E L C H E. ESE.tv channel cheese and I think it might be on the community TV channel in Sydney uh, TVS channel 44 but uh, some very interesting videos um, at channelcheese.tv and what I'm going to do I'm going to just play one it's a very interesting interview that she did with a guy who runs the Bangalore Cheese Company in Byron Bay New South Wales Let me just play that for you now. This year at the Sydney World Cheese Show, I judged over 80 different cheeses, including Nashua Wash Ryan. I awarded Nashua a gold medal and it went on to win Champion Fancy Cheese. I decided to visit Justin at Bangalore Cheese Co. in northern New South Wales to find out what it takes to make a gold medal winning cheese. So I've always loved cheese, but never really thought about being a cheesemaker. But I've also always wanted to do something with food and I ended up uh, working in the casino industry and I was one of the managers in the VIP room at um, the casino in Melbourne and that was pretty soul-destroying, looking after private gaming players who were gambling millions and millions of dollars and I actually found myself quite depressed thinking 
what am I going to do with my life? I want to live somewhere regional. I want to do something with food. I don't know how to link the two together and take the plunge. And uh, a waitress walked past with this amazing board of cheeses and the light went off and I just thought, ah, that's what I can do. I can be a cheesemaker. And I was up here for a long weekend, one weekend, and I thought, oh, while I'm up there, I'll just see what your money can buy. And by the end of the weekend, I'd bought a property. So uh, I was here for less than, a, less than a year when all of a sudden I had a lease on a cheese factory and was up and running. Most people don't realise wash rind cheeses are actually washed as they mature. I asked Justin to explain the process. Pretty much the way I explain it to most people who ask me what a wash rind is, because a lot of people still aren't aware of what a wash rind cheese actually is, mm-hmm. I explain it by saying it starts like a brie or a camembert mm-hmm. and then throughout its maturation I wash it every second day and then that process allows it to develop a more orange sort of rind as well as a stronger, more complex flavour profile. So my understanding is that a lot of Australian producers um, might just start with a brie or a camembert and just wash it. I actually have a much more complicated sort of uh, recipe, I guess, for my wash rinds and I've got lots and lots of different yeasts and moulds and different bacteria and things in there to try and develop some extra sort of flavour profiles. And my washing regime is a little bit different to a lot of other manufacturers as well um, because I have uh, different cocktails of wash mixes and they actually get different wash mixes at different stages of their maturing as well. Uh, Literally, I just wash them by hand and washing is probably a little bit of a funny term because I guess I'm sort of not really washing it. I'm just rubbing back that bloomy mould growth. I don't want to rub it so hard that I'm pulling the rind off the actual cheese but I'm knocking back that white mould growth to try and encourage the other moulds underneath it and a bacteria, um, bacterial rinds to form. So I do quite a lot of experimentation with different uh, recipes and different techniques and processes of how I do things um, just to come up with what is now the Nashua. But having said that, I'm constantly tweaking and adjusting and uh, playing around with things because I guess I'm on a constant crusade for perfection and improvement is the wash drying mm-hmm. which you're already reasonably familiar with so that was justin teller from the bangalow cheese company uh, in byron bay new south wales he makes a very interesting cheese there and he was interviewed by alison Brian. So don't forget, pop over, have a look at channelcheese.tv. Very interesting resource. They've got videos from Italy, France, Australia and the United States. So quite a few places that looks like that Alison has visited. There's some fantastic little videos in there. So I've got some cheese questions. And the, so Soren's from Denmark. And you may remember him from episode 32 when I featured his question around iodized uh, salt, so iodized cheese salt, and he's been doing some experiments. So I'll let him explain it to you now. Hi, Gavin. This is Søren from Denmark calling back to give you an update on uh, cheese making with iodized salt. And if the cheese maker doesn't know what I'm talking about, go back to podcast number 32 and listen to that. Now I've made uh, four cheeses with iodized salt that are ready for eating. Uh, two fetas, a kafili, and a blue and white mold ripened cheese. 
both the feathers taste exactly like uh, feathers types that I can get off the shelf here in Denmark. No difference at all. Now uh, I have absolutely no experience with a kafili. Uh, I've never heard about it before I started making cheese myself. But uh, I would describe it as a fairly salty cheese, um, slightly sour. And uh, when it ages it becomes more and more cheesy. It's uh, fairly crumbly. It's difficult to cut with a cheese cutter because when you reach the sides the, the cheese breaks off. Uh, to begin with I found that it tasted a lot like fetas but that has uh, changed over time uh, when it as it became more and more cheesy. Now the blue and white mold ripened cheese that I made I made by uh, cutting a small piece of an, of an off-the-shelf uh, cheese that had both uh, Candidum and Roqueforti and after about a week or so uh, both the white and blue mold had developed and uh, I started eating it after about four or five weeks and uh, it has developed also now uh, it looks more like a, a camembert with uh, some blue lines going through it in the middle and uh, again I would say it tastes exactly like the, the cheeses that I can get off the shelf. So I uh, don't believe that iodized salt inhibits any of uh, uh, the development of uh, the lactic uh, cultures or the mold cultures at all. So. Uh, I also have a question for you, uh, Gavin. It's uh, something that you touched on in your last podcast. Uh, you said that when adding lipase you would uh, extend the time for the curds to set. Could you do a podcast on factors that extend the curd setting times? Because I've had some very, very varying uh, curd setting times up to three and a half hours and I, uh, I've been trying to find out what I've, what's the, pro the problem is but uh, I still haven't figured it out. That's all for me. Bye. Well, thanks, Siren. I appreciate your voicemail. Really good um, set of questions there and some good research that you've done there as well. Um, I do believe you're, you're right in so much as that the cheeses that you have made with iodized salt, those cheeses have a very short uh, maturation time. So I wonder what would happen if you made cheeses like um, a cheddar, which would mature for between 6 and 12 months, and maybe a Parmesan, Romano, something like that, that matures for up to 12 months, on whether the lactic starter uh, or the starter cultures are inhibited in any way there. It's very interesting research that you've done there. And hopefully your question has been answered by my topic of this episode, which has been obviously all about coagulation. So thanks very much for your question and your experiments. Really do appreciate um, people out there giving it a go, challenging me on some of the things that we've been talking about here. Certainly don't mind that at all, especially if you've got the facts to back it up. Well done. Well done, Siren. So I've got some other questions here. Um, these are all emails, so uh, you'll have to excuse my dulcet tones um, as I read through them. All right. The first one is from Becky, and Becky is from Kirkland in Washington, USA. She says, hi, Gavin. 
I love your cheese making videos and they really inspire me greatly. I just received my cheese press and beginning supplies this week, so I just have to decide what I want to make. I I am a very experienced cook and love anything that requires fiddly attention to detail, so I'll probably dive in headfirst and try something like Double Gloucester or Cotswold, as these are my two favourite cheeses. I have a question that I'd love you to address for me. What are the virtues of vegetable rennet versus calf rennet? All the cheese-making videos I've watched and most of the recipes I've read call for calf rennet, but the kits I ordered came with vegetable rennet. I understand that vegetable rennet creates a less firm product. Can one compensate by adding a little bit more? I'm not opposed to just getting myself some calf rennet, but I wonder if there's any way for me to use vegetable rennet that came with my supplies in a successful way so as not to waste it. That said, if I'm going to go to the work to make cheese, I want a top quality result. If the vegetable rennet is just going to produce a substandard product, I'll chuck it in the compost bin. I would love your honest feedback. All the best, Becky. Well, thanks for your question, Becky. I personally use vegetable rennet for every single cheese that I've made. I've never touched calf rennet ever, and that's just because, well, no reason really. You know, I'm not a vegetarian. I eat meat and like um, most people do. Um, but I've just never gotten around to order any. And I find that I don't have any problem with vegetable rennet at all. All of the recipes in my book, in, in the ebook, have been tested using vegetable rennet. There are certainly no problems with that. And the quantities that I add are listed in Keep Calm and Make Cheese. So that's my honest opinion. Don't chuck out your vegetable rennet. In fact, all the cheese-making kits that I sell all come with vegetable rennet as well. Like I mentioned in the start of the show when we're talking about coagulation, you don't dilute vegetable uh, you don't dilute calf rennet as much as vegetable rennet. All my recipes, they're diluted to a standard for um, vegetable rennet. So hopefully that's answered your question. Don't be scared of the vegetable rennet. It works perfectly well. Some people do say that in very long-aged cheeses, it does produce a little bit of bitterness, uh, but that's only hearsay. I haven't experienced that myself, and I've aged cheeses up to 18 months, and they've all turned out fine, and they've tasted fantastic. So don't be scared of the vegetable rennet. Use it to your heart's content. Um, I certainly don't have any leaning either way, whether vegetable or calf rennet. Um, having said that, I might get some calf rennet and test it out. But, you know, I've used vegetable rennet, whether in a liquid form or in tablets, and they've all worked out fine. No issues whatsoever. Once again, thanks for your question, Becky. Okay, the next question is from uh, John. Now, John um, John Erdman sent me through a recipe for a low-salt feta. Now, I put that up on the Little Green Cheese blog, and you can have a look at that, and I'll put that in the show notes. However, he's got another question for me. He said, Gavin, I learned of this cheese called ricotta salata. That's spelled S-A-L-A-T-A. So um, it's also known as ricotta seca. It's spelled S-E-C-C-A. And he found an interesting article in the New York Times. I haven't been a fan of ricotta because of its blandness, but the texture of this cheese intrigues me. 
Have you seen, made or tasted this cheese? How does it compare to feta on salads? I've seen a recipe for it on Ricky Carroll's website, but I'd like to hear other opinions. Have you run across it yourself? Uh, Know of any other recipes? Thanks, John. Well, thank you, John, for your question. Now, yes, I have made this cheese before. Basically, all it is is a pressed ricotta, okay? Normal ricotta, you simply drain it and then you salt it and then you eat it and you only put a little bit of salt in Um, because normally when we make fresh ricotta, we use whole milk and we'll then, um, and I do that for cheese making workshops, and then Kim bakes with it. She makes a lovely chocolate ricotta tart that is just the most amazing tart that you ever did taste. However, now what you can do though, instead of just draining your ricotta, you can put it into a cheese basket and you can press it. I'd only press it lightly. Um, last time I did it, it was about five kilos for 12 hours and that got most of the way out. Forms quite a solid cheese. Um, I still put the same amount of salt in when I uh, mixed it through the, uh, milled the salt through the, the the curds. They're quite sloppy at that time, so you lose a little bit of salt. Um, I think it's about a tablespoon. I'd have to check my recipe again. But all um, ricotta salata is, is that it's a pressed ricotta, and it just forms a, a, a block of cheese. You can age it a little bit, but I just left mine to stand at room temperature, um, covered by a cheesecloth for a few days, and it turned out lovely. Very nice cheese, not as salty as feta, certainly lovely on salads, um, and you can cut it into cubes. There's no issues with that at all. So, yeah, so all it is is a pressed ricotta. So there you go. Hopefully that answers your question, John. Uh, next question is from Faye, and Faye has a question says, hi, Gavin, I've just purchased your cheese making and chicken ebooks. Well, thanks very much for that. I've, I might be asking you quite a few questions regarding cheese making in the future, so bear with me. Uh, the first one is salt. Does it make a difference if the salt has an anti-caking agent in it? We have made our first cheeses and managed to find the purest salt we can um, to make a brine, but it's quite chunky to rub over camemberts. We have a wine fridge and Andrew, my partner, has them stored at 16 degrees Celsius on untreated pine. After reading your book, this is too high, so I bought a container with a rack and a lid, but we'll continue with the 16 degrees Celsius to see what happens. I won't bore you with the Gouda in the other lower fridge yet. (laughs) Cheers, Faye. Okay, Faye, thanks very much for your question. Answer to this one, anti-caking agent, if you are using Um, salt with an anti-caking agent in it for brine that is no hassle at all you can do that however if you are going to salt cheeses like a camembert or a kefili or you're going to mill salt into it it's probably best if you don't use a salt that has anti-caking agent because it's a bit of a pain as you mentioned um, to rub um, over the cheese so get a coarse cheese salt or a kosher kosher, uh, salt that doesn't have anything added to it at all. It's just pure salt. Uh, And you'll find that you'll have no problems at all in your cheese-making endeavours. In answer to your observation, 16 degrees Celsius is a tad too high. Um, I like to mature my semi-hard and hard cheeses between 11, 12 to 13 degrees Celsius. 13 is about as high as I like to go. 
because um, I find that the cheese starts to sweat if it's too warm and you'll lose a lot of the fat content or the oils out of your cheese. So hopefully everything goes well. Check out. I'd love to hear back from you to see how your cheese went ripening at that um, higher temperature. Uh, thanks, Faye, for your question. And the lucky last question is from Carly. Carly asked me a question which I didn't understand, so she wrote back again. Um, she says, um, let me think, where's the original question? Uh, she says, hi, Gavin, have you had any experience using other pieces of cheese as a slurry added to your own? Now, I come back and said I didn't understand. I know what a slurry is, but I wasn't too sure what she was on about. But she came back and said, sorry, Gavin, what I meant is inoculating your own cheese with mould from other cheeses. So say I was making a camembert and I made a slurry made from my favourite store-bought cheese. I've seen people on cheese forums talking about it a little bit. Thanks, Carly. Well, thanks for your question, Carly. Uh, yeah, you could. Um, I have seen people cutting off a little bit of the cheese, mixing it with some warm milk um, and adding that to their, uh, their milk um, before it's renneted. So you can do that. I've also done it myself. I've uh, taken the blue vein or the blue mould penicillium roque 40 out of a blue cheese and added that and inoculated my milk using that because I ran out of, uh, of the powdered uh, dried penicillium roque 40 and that works fine. I didn't see as much blue vein development as I normally would have. So just be aware that you may not see as much mould development if you use either Penicillium Candidum from a store-bought Camembert or Penicillium Roque 40 from a store-bought blue-type cheese. So, you know, I prefer to use the dried powders that uh, that come from uh, cheese-making stores, and I find that I don't have... It's not so hit and miss. You know, they're not that expensive. They last for about 12 months, and if you're making quite a few Camemberts or, or Blue Vein cheeses, then it's probably best to stick with the, the powders. But having said that, yes, you can do that, and uh, and hopefully that answers your question. Thanks for your question, Carly. Well, that's all I've got time for this week. Thanks very much, everybody, for listening. For upcoming workshop dates, if you live in the Melbourne area, um, Pop over to littlegreencheese.com. You can also find my ebook there, Keep Calm and Make Cheese, The Beginner's Guide to Cheese Making at Home. And that's in all ebook formats and at all good ebook retailers. You can also find recipes and video tutorials over at littlegreencheese.com. Um, pop over there and browse through the um, over 100 articles there. You can also find my cheese making kits um, that are available for shipping within Australia only, unfortunately, due to the cultures within them. So thanks for listening, Curd Nerds, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Little Green Cheese Podcast. During this episode, you heard royalty-free music by Kevin McLeod. I played Malt Shop Bop news theme and call to the dairy cows.